What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rockstrikes 10 and cnjradio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock
Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, it is now time for part two of four, The Odds and Ends of 1973, a true epic all-time odd and end right there as we kicked off the show with Mike Oldfield, a do-it-yourself composer for sure, if there ever was one. Most people may only know Mike for that song, but you may know another song that Mike Oldfield actually did originally. He did put out experimental-like pop rock type records, uh, leaning prog for sure, but at one point, and I think I mentioned this on the show already if I haven't already played it, but I will on a future if I haven't, in 1981 or so, early 80s, Mike Oldfield with some guest vocalists in the studio on his records, because he didn't sing, but he had other people sing for him, he recorded the original version of a song called Family Man, which later became a big hit for Daryl Hall and John Oates. So if you didn't know that, you know it now. And yes, you just heard Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, an all-instrumental solo album of his that came out in 1973, and of course was famously repurposed to be the theme song for the movie The Exorcist, which was probably the biggest deal in cinema, if I had to guess off the top of my head, in 1973. That's a crossover horror movie that everybody saw, much in the same vein as like a psycho for an earlier reference. That's just, it was an event movie that everybody had to go see. Most people were horrified by it. It still tracks, it still rules, Exorcist Man. But that song was not commissioned to be the theme for The Exorcist. It just became the theme because someone liked this piece. So there you have it. That was basically the three, three and a half minute single edit that they put out for public consumption as a 45. And of course, put the Exorcist imaging on it and it sold a ton of records. And then actually some percentage of people actually got into the entire album as a whole. But I feel like people really still haven't heard it. And I just listened to it for the first time in a long time to prep for these episodes. And I got to say, my biggest takeaway right off the bat is I would love for some upstart filmmaker to take the rest of the 45 minutes of that album and just score your movie with it. Like, especially if you're going horror or retro horror, timeless horror, if you will. But I would love to see a movie that uses the rest of this music because the rest of this music is really cool. It's creepy in places. It, it has a lot of different weird cues. I think someone could make something out of it. So I'm just putting it out there in the universe. Somebody do something with the rest of this damn music already because it's really, really neat, actually. We're into that early stage of the 70s where people are getting these experimental instruments more consistently in the studios and in the music stores and stuff like that. And they're taking them home and they're figuring them out. Most people made the best stuff by throwing away the manual and just doing whatever came into your heart. But yes, that is an important song, an important record. And honestly, that is one of those needle-moving, game-changer kind of songs because not only did it become one of the all-time great movie themes, instantly recognizable, it's iconic, but that song and the success of it literally launched an entire empire of stuff. And Richard Branson, soon to be millionaire at the time, later billionaire, backed this record. And this is the album that kicked off the Virgin Records label. And a lot of cool stuff came out of that. So yeah, this album literally made Virgin Records a happening. And a lot of people got signed because of it. 
I mean, we're talking about record stores, freaking airlines, a lot of jobs were created, and it all started with tubular bells. Isn't that weird? It's neat, though. I like those cool old music stories, those industry stories, because most industry stories nowadays are really terrible. But I digress. Let's get back into it. Yes, you are here once again at the odds and ends of 1973. If you are a new friend of the show, and uh, I usually don't ramble this long on the beginning of a show, but the odds and ends are songs that appear throughout the year on random things that will not usually be considered for end of the year lists such as uh, like an all-instrumental album. I count as an odd and end because people more often than not like vocals. So instrumental albums for me are really hard to rank for that reason, so that's an odd and end. Other things, obviously, single-only releases, EPs, songs from soundtracks, box sets, cover albums, tribute albums, songs off of podcasts. <laughs> There's new stuff being added to the list every year. So you're here in the midst of 1973. A lot of great stuff, of course. I can't wait to bring you this albums list. I just finalized the countdown list last night, and it jams. It It's so great. There's a lot of episodes to get through on it, but it's pretty much all greatness. There's no real ho-hum records on this countdown, so looking forward to bringing this to you. But we got three more odds and ends to get through. Before we do that, let's continue on with this one right here, straight off of a Thin Lizzy single-only release in 1973. This one's called Randolph's Tango. Senorita took off her vibe inside. She said she's gonna wear skirt the jacks. She's pulling out all the stops To get a Randolph bag You me why Randolph be his back at the ranch He's getting ready for tonight's song and dance He doesn't know he doesn't stand a chance His last affair will be his last romance The senorita will be there waiting Randolph's so tango with me And underneath the Latin moonlight They danced and seen a falling star in flight With a strum of guitar she held and tight She wants a Randolph bag again Meanwhile it's worthwhile for Randolph to wait Till he gets the nerve that he won't hesitate doesn't know, but he's just hit the bait. He's just asked if he could make a date. The senorita will be there waiting. Don't go, my Randolph, so tango with me.
little laid-back early offering right there by Ireland's greatest band of all time, Thin Lizzy. I like that. It's nice and smooth and everything. That's another reason why I really like the Nightlife record, even though, of course, I love the Rockers. But they do really good with the mellow material. That's a good example right there. And not surprisingly, that song only charted as a single in their homeland of Ireland, just barely missing the top ten. But they're on their way. They're going to be doing great things throughout the entirety of the 70s and into the early 80s. Can't wait to take you on that journey in the just in case you are not fully indoctrinated into Thin Lizzy. This is not an old man any trunk rant. It's just a fact and a science of actual music. Okay, moving on. Here's sticking with the mellow side of things because we got a whole bunch of crazy shit to get into, especially throughout these next couple of parts of the odds and ends. But if you were alive, which I wasn't in 1973, but if you were alive and actively buying records in 1973, at one point you might have come across an image of a band on a record cover standing on the top of a mountain, all silhouetted, can't see their faces, and it definitely looks like there's a country band standing on the top of this hill. And the album says the Blue Ridge Rangers, which is hard to say 10 times fast and on the first take. But if you didn't know better, He's like, hey, that's a no-name band. I don't know them. It looks like a country record if you're into rock and roll. You're like, I'm not buying that. But you may have missed out on the first ever solo album by John Fogarty. Yes, once John Fogarty had been out of Creedence Clearwater Revival entirely and washed his hands of it, it was a very bitter breakup. It was a very bitter everything concerning the last part of that whole band's history. It's out there for you to read about. It almost seems like the fictional scenario here could be true. I don't know. But John Fogarty being so broken up about what went down with Credence that he just crawled himself into a bottle and went to this local saloon of his every night and just got into all of the country music. Because, yes, John Fogarty's first ever solo album is an all-country music covers album. And so since it's so far removed from what people might know him to be, especially at that time in his life and his career, he put the album out under an assumed name here, Blue Ridge Rangers. And later on when the album got repressed to different pressings, they'd put his name on it. But for the initial release, they did not promote John Fogarty on it at all which is probably another reason why most people haven't heard this record still. And it works like you think it would. It's John Fogarty's voice singing over these now, even at this time, old school country classics right here. So I'm going to pick this one right here because 
I actually had this song on, and I, I remember it now, actually. It was on the Swinger soundtrack when I was a teenager, and that's a whole other conversation in itself. Like, that was during the big swing movement and everything, but there were a couple of country songs on that soundtrack because it totally fit the mood. It totally fit the narrative and the mood of that movie. So I'm going to play you this one right here, just an all-timer, most famously sung by George Jones. Here is She Thinks I Still Care. John Fogarty right there, Blue Ridge Rangers, She Thinks, I Still Care, one of the all-time great country ballads right there. I like that version, so if you're into that sort of thing, check it out. It's a record maybe you hadn't heard yet. So moving on here, this gets into a conversation that we're going to have a lot throughout these big 1973 retrospectives, especially during the album's countdown as you're going to hear about a lot of different artists double-dipping on the year, which, yes, 
That was the time in the industry where they were cranking records out. At the very least, one album per year, but a lot of them would be doing the two albums per year method. And being a Kiss fan, I have read at different points that the reasoning behind the get an album in the store every six months practice really just boils down to business in the sense that not just because another album makes money for everybody involved, but because the labels don't have to credit the one-stops distributors and the record stores for return to product. Because more often than not, when a band, singer, whatever, puts out a new record, there's automatic reinterest in the back catalog. So if you've got a new record on the horizon, like almost consistently, then that means that you the stores may think twice about pulling your back stock off and sending it back for credit. They'll just leave it out there so the potential to make more money is always there and you're not losing any money also. So that's the reason why you had to be a workhorse in the 70s because that's how the business model was. And for a band like this, coming up at the very beginning of their career, putting out two records in one year, much like a lot of these bands that we'll talk about, is this one right here that would actually really not get the biggest boost in their career until like later on in the decade. But they put out two really fun records right off the bat. And it's a predominantly instrumental band. There's very little vocals on their albums. So that's why they fit in here in the odds and ends category. But this is a Philly soul band called MFSB. And it's a collective of different musicians that were basically like the Funk Brothers or the Wrecking Crew of Philadelphia Soul, where they played on everybody's major record at that time, especially anything that had anything to do with something you could dance to or something that was funky or groovy. And this was the band you would call, just a collective of people. And they threw it down every single time, much like a lot of those other heralded collective of musicians. And so they finally put out their own album, uh, like I said, of course, mostly all instrumental because that makes sense now because they're not known for having a singer. Or, but yeah, MFSB, they put out these fun records here in 73, and I'm actually going to do a double shot by them. The first one here being maybe a surprising cover since it was almost a brand new song at the time, which wasn't necessarily a weird thing in the 70s either to have like an instant cover come out like months after the release. And then the second song is going to be the song that they're definitely 100% the most known for. So we're going to get into something completely different right here with a fun double shot from some great Philly soul musicians, MFSB. Enjoy.
right, a fun little double shot right there of MFSB straight out of Philly. We kick things off with a song that appeared on their self-titled debut record. And by the way, you got to go look up the album cover for this at the very least. It's like, it's crazy. It's a goddamn needle in a coffin. So I don't know if that's more like Vietnam War stuff or just the fact that they covered Freddy's Dead as the opening track on this record. But yeah, that one hits pretty hard right there. But yes, that was their version of the OJs, Backstabbers, a song that was very, very new at the time still. So we got a cover of it, an all-instrumental version. It's an iconic song for me. It's one of the all-time greats, in my opinion. And finishing things up with The Sound of Philadelphia, T-S-O-P. Of course, that's an iconic song. Even if you're just talking about dance culture of the 70s, the discos and everything. And I, I believe, if I'm right about this, I should know this offhand. I believe that song is on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. If not, it ought to be. Or at least it's in the film, maybe. Or maybe I'm just connecting the fact that it was also the Soul Train theme song for years and years. So, regardless, it's an iconic dance classic. So, you can't do a 1973 retrospective without something like that in there. Didn't become a big hit until 74, but it did technically come out in the year 1973. So, that's all you need to get onto my show here. We're going to dial back down into the more mellow song stylings with a double shot from two different live albums. One that's criminally underheard and one that probably has never been heard too much in the United States. We'll start off with that one right here with an unlikely person, uh, Donovan, who I, I'm, a, I'm a Donovan guy. He's my hippie friend, but along with John Sebastian. But Do Donovan's the man. If I got to go folk, I go Donovan 1,000%. And... I had to dig for this one because at the beginning of this, I'm like, yeah, Donovan totally had to have a record out in 1973. Not only that, he had three out in the calendar year of 1973. He had two studios and he had this right here, a Japanese only live album called Live in Japan Spring Tour 1973. And it's a great performance, just him out there, just bare and... It's some chilling stuff, so I recommend checking it out as a whole. You'll have to go on like the YouTubes of the world to get it or whatever, but it might be worth it to check out this Japanese-only Donovan album from 1973. Here's something to possibly get you enticed. Uh, like I said, chilling stuff. This is Donovan with Your Broken Heart. Broken heart 
Alan Jardine. Ah, uh, yes, a nice, nice endorphin-releasing double shot of live music right there. We kick things off with Donovan with Your Broken Heart from Live in Japan. We finish things off with my favorite live album from 1973, By a Mile. Not a lot of them anyway, but this one rules right here. Beach Boys in Concert, 1973. Man, oh my God. The absolute 100% best live touring lineup the band ever had. This was the peak of their live performances, and I'm so glad that they recorded this tour and put it out there for the world to enjoy. Need the rest of the world to catch up on this one. As a guy who really massively got into the Beach Boys, like around 2000, so my ear to like figuring out who was singing lead on all these things, the ear wasn't that sophisticated yet. But I just assumed that most of the lead vocals, when it wasn't Mike Love, and thankfully Mike doesn't ruin the uh, live album here, thankfully, not for me at least, but I always assumed that Carl Wilson did most of the lead vocals on these songs because Brian wasn't there. But like that one especially, that was Al Jardine, one of the best vocals he's ever done. And just taking that song that Brian Wilson wrote about himself and making it sound like it's so personable to him, and I'm, maybe it was. I mean, I feel like you'd have to have some sort of connection with the lyrics of that song to be able to sing it that way. But it's just breathtaking, and there's so many great performances. I've even said, as kind of a slight contrarian, snobby thing to say, but honestly, and I wish I could have included it here on these Odds and Ends episodes, but the live version of Wouldn't It Be Nice on that record, I love that version so much. Right there when it just breaks down right in the middle, right in the breakdown there. It's just a perfect musical moment for me, and I can't really describe it. You just have to hear it. You'll know what I mean when you hear it. I feel like you will. Okay, moving on from the Beach Boys, because I could talk Beach Boys all day. This band right here, much like MFSB, another one of those studio bands that put out a solo album in 1973. And I was not aware of this, but I am definitely a fan of these guys. If you're not a fan of these guys, then you're not a fan of American music because the MGs, the house band from Stax Records, they actually put out a solo album in 1973. I was not aware of this. No Booker T on here, just the guys, just the MGs. And this is a pretty decently enjoyable record. It's definitely pleasant. I enjoyed it. So now you're going to enjoy something by it here. This is the MGs with Spare Change.
MGs right there from their self-titled solo debut. Self-titled MGs. Yes, yes, that was Spare Change. Hope you enjoyed that. If you don't know the name the MGs by me just saying that and involved with Stax Records, then you should know who they are. But even if you don't know who they are, you know at least 50 songs that they've played on minimum. So go look them up. They're one of the great assembled collective of musicians and just a handful of people. It's not like MFSB, who was like 30 people. This is like four guys, three guys, I guess, without Booker T, as far as I know. But yes, a few people came in and out. But yes, one of the great true bands of all time that gave us so much damn music. All right, I've given you a lot of soul and funk and mellow song stylings here on this episode and even a horror movie theme. And now it's time for the prog selection of the night because prog absolutely riding high. One of its peak years is definitely, you know, early 70s for sure. 73 is a pretty damn good year for prog as you will hear when we get to the albums countdown as well. It's not like a ton, but the heavy hitters are in full effect for sure. And this band being no exception, a band that was up there with a lot of those bands at the time, they were definitely more popular, I feel, than like a Genesis or something at the time. These guys right here, Hawkwind. And man, if you are into the prog or into just crazy-ass live albums, then go check out this live album right here that came out in the spring of 73, the album is called The Space Ritual, Alive in Liverpool and London. I think they should have just called it The Space Ritual Alive or something like that because it, it sounds sexier. But this thing is wild, man. Just notes all over the place, tripped out stuff, long songs. There's a guy doing slam poetry on it. And yes, a young Ian Kilmister, better known as Lemmy, is on bass during this era. So there's a lot of stuff to appreciate about this record. You're either going to love it or hate it, or I guess in the middle, at least think it's interesting enough that it wasn't a waste of time. So let's go with that. But it's pretty damn cool So for my money. So here's one of the shortest songs I could find, but also one of the best. At seven and a half minutes, this is a live version of Hawkwind doing Master of the Universe. Enjoy. <laughs>
that unmistakable heavy ass Rickenbacker tone, Lemmy right there. And that was Hawkwind with Master of the Universe on that live album. Oof. Yeah, if you think that's something, you ought to hear the full it's it's a double album for sure. It's like almost an hour and a half of stuff. It's like wow man. Oof. All right. Nobody in any of those arenas are passing a sobriety test that night, that's for sure. I can't imagine. I mean, you'd get a contact high. You'd fail the sobriety test even if you hadn't taken anything on the way home. There's no doubt about that. Okay. Speaking of failing sobriety tests, to close off, since you were so good and you've been so patient with this episode, because this is the weirdest one of the Four Odds and Ends episodes. The other ones will make a little bit more sense. These just kept kind of falling in and out of different episodes. So it's almost like this is the Island of Misfit Toys, even for the Odds and Ends. But yes, once again, failing sobriety tests with Cheech and Chong right here. Yes, Cheech and Chong, if you know them, you know they have a handful of songs out there and a good amount of their songs actually charted which is really neat. This one right here has a life of its own. It's off of their third album called Los Cochinos. And it's a song called Basketball Jones. If you don't know anything about this, I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. I feel like maybe you should hear it before I tell you about it, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway, because it's kind of neat. It's something you can listen for now. So it's also another one of those tales where the record label executives back in the day, most of them were a lot more hands-on, very into the music. And a lot of times in the instance of like a Lou Adler, for instance, at Warner Brothers, actually signed Cheech and Chong himself and was their producer and just basically gave them free reign to do stuff. And how many label presidents would do that nowadays? But Lou did that for Cheech and Chong because he was a fan and I'm sure a friend. But they started working on this song right here. And this is one of those songs that as they were recording it in the studio, the song just grew and grew and became something. This is basically Cheech and Chong's Bohemian Rhapsody, okay? So this song, Basketball Jones, right here, it finishes up Los Cochinos because you can't really go anywhere after it. And that's why I'm closing the show tonight with it as well. And I found a few articles about the making of this because people are now starting to figure out, oh, wow, this happened. This is kind of an amazing one-off thing. So I guess there are different people in different studios that they're recording this album in. And Lou Adler just being Lou and everybody knows him and he knows everybody. He's just basically like bringing people into the studio. And, you know, after a while, it's like they're just playing on it. And I'm assuming there were some party favors being thrown around as well. But at the end of the day, whenever they finalize the final mix... For Basketball Jones, with Cheech Marin leading here on vocals, you've got people like Carol King playing the piano, Nicky Hopkins also playing piano. If you don't know that name, he played on a lot of Stones records. People like Billy Preston, speaking of the Stones, he played for the Stones and of course famously played for the Beatles as well, in addition to his solo stuff. Klaus Vorman, who played on everybody's records, go look him up. That guy got around. And of course the iconic, late, great George Harrison, playing lead guitar on this song. So this is basically almost like a George Harrison solo album with Cheech Marin singing on it. And if that wasn't enough, the quote-unquote cheerleaders on this record, uh, going off of memory here, I do know that Ronnie Spector and Darlene Love are on this. And I want to say, I think it's Michelle Phillips or Mama Cass. I think, I think maybe Michelle Phillips, that sounds right, is doing background vocals as the cheerleaders on here. And there's a few more names too, and I'm forgetting them. So forgive me, but that's all my memory can stand. You know who doesn't play on this song is Chong. Basketball 
Jones. I got a basketball Jones. Got a basketball Jones. Oh, baby. Since I was a little baby, I always be dribbling. In fact, I was the baddest dribbler in the whole neighborhood. Then one day, my mama bought me a basketball, and I love that basketball. I took that basketball with me everywhere I went. That basketball was like a basketball to me. Closing out the show here today with Basketball Jones featuring Tyrone Shoelaces. 
aka Cheech Marin right there. And I wasn't hating on Chong, by the way. I love Chong. It's just, I think it's kind of funny that with all that going on, Chong is not on this track at all. He's on the B side, which is, I believe, the talk up to this song, The White World of Sports. Uh, but yeah, I just thought that was humorous. And I know it's kind of a sign of the times. Maybe it hasn't aged well, but I like me some basketball, Jones. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this weird and wacky episode of Rock Strikes 10, part two of the odds and ends of 1973. Stay tuned because we got some killer tunes lined up for the next two odds and ends episodes. And of course, we're going to get to that big, bad, epic top albums of 1973. How many are there? You're just going to have to stay tuned and find out. Till then, stay tuned for my better half, Nola with the plugs and followed by the best damn outro song and all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at rockstrikes 10 and the direct email is rockstrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rock Strikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun. Game show is brought to you by Christ. I can't find it. The hell with it.